What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 259 with my guest, licensed clinical social worker, Merritt Stewart. Today's episode was brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. So start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code MENTAL at checkout and you get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. I'm Paul Gail Martin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a doctor or a therapist. This isn't a doctor's office. It's uh, it's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. You can go there. You can fill out surveys that maybe we'll read on the air. You can browse the forum. You can read blogs and guest blogs. You can support the show. So um, go uh, check that out. Uh, also, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Oh, and while I'm thinking of it, uh, I want to remind you guys about that live uh, recording of the podcast I'm doing in Oakland on Friday, January 22nd. And my guest is uh, going to be Guy Branham, a really funny guy. Um, and it's going to be at the Uptown Nightclub. I will put the link uh, to buy tickets, but I believe you can also go to uh, uptownnightclub.com uh, to to get tickets. But um, they'll be uh, 15 in advance and $20 at the door. So, uh, yeah, please come out. That should be, should be a lot of fun. Um, Herbert... <laughs> Is, is Herbert is doing better, by the way. Uh, they changed his meds up a little bit, um, and uh, of course, why wouldn't my, why wouldn't one of my pets uh, also have to play med roulette to to stay on this planet? Um, he uh, he's feeling better. He's uh, he's hardly coughing at all, and uh, he's, he's on a little bit of a diet because uh, he's a little fat. I'm 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 not gonna mince words. Uh, yeah, the vet was like, yeah, he uh, 
you need to limit what you're feeding him. And so he's now he's on some kind of ridiculous metabolism, burning, I don't know. I'm having trouble forming sentences, by the way. I've been in a, a funk lately, and sometimes when I get in a funk, my brain... You know what your house or your apartment looks like after you've moved all the furniture out and, you, and you're standing in there, and it's almost like... It's like an eerie feeling of emptiness that just doesn't, it kind of doesn't feel right. That's what my brain feels like when I'm either depressed or I'm going through something that I don't want to be be going through. And I'll, I'll tell you guys more about it later. It's, uh, I just don't really feel like getting, getting into it um, right now. But anyway, um, back to uh, to Herbert. So uh, we get possum uh, coming through our backyard sometimes. And uh, <laughs> we let Herbert out to go to the bathroom, Herbert and Ivy. And, uh, and there's a possum there. And Herbert goes charging at it. And I don't know, know if you know this, but her, uh, possum have really fucking sharp claws and sharp teeth. Herbert has neither. Herbert doesn't have sharp claws sharp teeth, or sharp brain. He basically has, I think, three teeth, uh, and they're probably all wobbly, and no sense of how small he is. So he goes running out there. He and the possum are probably two inches. Their, their noses are two inches apart, and the possum starts doing that hissing at him, and Herbert is just mad-dogging him, just not backing down at all. And on top of that, Herbert slowly lifts his leg and starts to piss. I don't know if Herbert is brave or dumb. I think he might be a little bit of both, but uh, there's, there's a great snapshot of Herbert in a nutshell. Um, all right, I'm going to read a, a couple of uh, struggle in a sentence surveys. Um, was there something else I wanted to mention? Oh, it, it the um, if you're not somebody that sticks around for the surveys after the uh, end of the interview, uh, there's almost kind of a false false ending uh, in the interview with Merritt where we had finished recording and then we started talking about something and I said, oh, we we have to we have to add that. Um, so uh, just letting you know, uh, we talk about. Uh, one of her clients who had uh, dissociative identity disorder. All right, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Betty. And about her depression, she writes, uh, Bipolar depression, it feels like my soul is sinking into a black hole in my chest. Oh, that is a good one. That is a good one. This was filled out by Hazel Bellhop, and she writes about her depression. Uh, it feels like living in the doldrums and the phantom toll booth. I had to Google what the Phantom Toll Booth was, and apparently it's a children's book from the from the early '60s. And I was looking at a little picture of the the cover of the book, and it just I just suddenly, you know, coupled with that feeling that I have right now of like my brain feeling like an empty apartment and that that kind of hole in your chest when you're kind of depressed and you know whatever. And I was just thinking, you know, there are people that have summer homes. I, I want to have a winter home that is just a closet that is filled with pillows and pajamas and somebody that just brings you things. And you don't even have to get out to, to, to go to the bathroom. Maybe there's a, there's a hole, a hole in the floor. And, and it's just, 
you could just not have to face anybody or anything. I'm pretty sure that would be super healthy. Um, anyway, those of you that are architects and uh, uh, developers, I want you to get on my uh, winter closet. It could be like a uh, like a whole neighborhood. You could have like 400 people to a block. I'm getting tired of my voice five minutes into the podcast. This is not good. I've got a big stack of surveys, and I don't think there's any way I'm going to get through them. Right before I started rolling, I was... I was just sitting with my eyes closed trying to work the courage up to to turn on the microphone and start recording because my brain is just, uh, those of you that that deal with depression and and the other kinds of stuff, it's, it's almost like there's a life force in you and sometimes a breeze comes by and just for no apparent reason, it just leaves you like that life force. And it feels like so much of my life is trying to figure out what was it that blew that life force out of me in that moment, for that day, for that week, for those months. And then, oddly enough, it'll come back. Trying to figure out what was it that brought it back. This is filled out by Jessica. She writes about her anxiety. Uh, Driving with the windows open, even in negative temperatures, to keep the panic at bay. That sounds like a good idea, actually. Um, Oh, I love this name. Lonely in a crowded stadium. And she writes about her dermatillomania. To hear, just stop picking and you will be cured, is the same as me telling you to just stop breathing and you can be a world-class scuba diver. Right on. Thank you. Uh, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself a rage monster about her ADD. Uh, she writes, like cooking on all four burners at once and none of the food comes out right. About having sex addiction, she writes, if all these people want to fuck me, then I must be worth something. And about her anger issues, if I scream louder, you'll hear me better. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone. Why hypervigilance I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you're just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house. And you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. <laughs> I'm here with Merritt Stewart, who is a, is it LMFT or LC? LCSW. Licensed clinical social worker. Uh, she operates here in in New York City. And um, you're a listener to the podcast. I believe you reached out to me a year or two ago. And I believe so. Just saying that how much I enjoyed it and what an important service I thought you were doing by having it. I thought you said I did a shit job and I should hang it up. <laughs> Maybe I'm thinking of another... You're projecting. Another uh, uh, person. But you specialize in um, working with people who've had trauma. You also 
uh, do some work in the court system advocate, advocating on behalf of people who have to um, go to trial to, to prosecute? Yeah. Um, so my practice is working with adult survivors of either childhood sexual abuse or sort of recent sexual assaults um, and or intimate partner violence and often all three of those together. <laughs> Talk about the relationship between uh, between the three of those things. Um, I mean, I find when someone walks into my door, they know, you know, I'm. It's clear that they're coming because of the services that I offer, which is working with sexual trauma. So that might be the primary sort of presentation about why they're there. You know, I was raped six months ago. I was abused by my father as a child. Um, but then when you start to sort of open the lid on the history, um, it's often very normalized because it is something that's been passed down in their family from generation to generation. And a lot of people come in because they don't want to see that legacy continue into the next one. How is it they feel like they don't have they don't have boundaries and they're afraid that they will raise children that don't know how to protect themselves or is it afraid that they're afraid they're going to perpetuate the abuse on somebody else um i think it can be a bit of both uh and it's not always about you know having children either i mean often it's people that sort of want to have more clarity on how they were raised and try to forge a better relationship or have no relationship with their family system. Um, what else did you ask me? Um, <laughs> what, did, what, what specifically are they trying yeah, to and I, do, I, I mean, I do think sometimes, I mean, one common uh, presentation for a client to come in is often that they are pregnant or they're about to have a child or they've just had a child. And that can be sort of a very sort of, well, it's emotionally... It's an emotional time anyway, um, but it often can bring up uh, experiences of how they were raised and their worries about their capability of uh, being a maternal person. Or often it's people who have children who have gotten to the age where they themselves were abused as children, and it's been very triggering for them. In, in what way is it triggering for them? Uh you know, I had a woman that I worked with who had a 12-year-old daughter, and the daughter had just started menstruating, um, and she was terrified that she was sexually active, and I'm not sure that she was or she wasn't, but the mother was had the insight and the capability to recognize that a lot of this was about her projecting things onto her daughter and not clear sort of what was coming from her daughter's behavior and attitude and how much of it was hers. So she wanted to very much sort of take ownership of this and understand it. That's a really beautiful self-aware um, thing for a parent to do. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's so progressive. Yeah. Do you think that's a reflection of how we've moved forward as a society? Do you think you would have seen something like that in the fifties? No, <laughs> No, not at all. Um, and I don't know how much, how far we've moved along as a society either. Um, I think because I live in New York and because I'm in this field, I tend to be in circles with people who are similarly sort of enlightened and exposed and knowledgeable about this material. But, you know, I don't think that 
most of the world is like this. Talk about the um, the legal system around sexual abuse, sexual assault. What are the pitfalls? What are the myths that people may not realize about it? What can we do as a society to support people? I got a gazillion questions. <laughs> so let me see. Um... And the first thing I want to say before you talk about that is anybody who's are you warm? I'll, yes. yeah, I'll turn the air on. Um, the difference that that the the um, how prosecutable something is that happened to you has nothing to do with how valid what happened to you is and how you feel about it. Yes. Talk very, about talk very uh, well stated. I yeah. couldn't have said it better myself. Yes. Because that keeps a lot of people from healing because they're like, well, right. if it's not a crime, why am I so upset about it? Right. So I work in a hospital uh, in New York City, and we have, obviously, well, there's an emergency room. So a lot of our referrals come through the emergency room. So it's someone who's been a recent victim of a sexual assault, say. Um, many of our referrals come from people who are survivors of sexual abuse that happened 10, 20 years ago. So, so there's different entry points that people come in to my office. Um, if someone comes in through the emergency room, and if they come to the emergency room at all, generally they're coming because they want to have a sexual assault forensic examination, which we call a safe exam. Um, that is basically just collecting evidence, because um, if you think about it, a sexual assault, the crime scene, the body is the crime scene. So, And the weird, and the weird <laughs> fucked up thing is, it can feel like a crime scene for decades. Yeah. Right. So in that instance, if someone comes in and wants the forensic exam, um, they can choose whether they want to have the police ha be interviewed by, by the police and make a statement and have the police collect the exam, or they can say, I don't know yet, and the exam itself will be stored. Um, and then they can decide later and, you know, down the line that they might want the, uh, it to be collected and analyzed for evidence. Um, That's a good thing to, to know because I never realized that. Because I imagine a lot of people come in there and they're like, oh, the thought of testifying uh, is, oh, I don't ever want to see that right. person again. So, I mean, we store the kits. I mean, we say 90 days, but often we store them for up to a year. And I'm not even going to get into the backlog of rape kits in this country. Right. Go ahead. So, um, so if some, let's say, so if someone <clears throat> wants to, they know at that moment that they want to make a statement to the police, we will call special victims and they will come to the emergency room and interview the patient and they'll take a statement and based on the client's statement, they will decide if they have enough information to make an arrest um, and they'll also collect the kit. Now, now is the information when you say you have enough information? Do you mean DNA evidence? No, meaning the name of the perpetrator. Okay. Um, you know, if there were witnesses to the crime, if the person knows where the perpetrator lives, um, and a lot of times people come in and they have no idea what's happened. 
either because they might have been drugged, because they've blacked out from drinking too much. Um, it can vary. Some people really don't know. And one thing I always tell people is rape kits do not validate that a crime occurred. They don't invalidate it either, but they can't, they're not going to answer your question. Yes, you were raped. No, you weren't raped. Um, There's no DNA test for Evidence consent. or lack of evidence doesn't equal... A crime occurred. But doesn't, uh, I hate to get graphic, but I know there's no other way around it, doesn't tearing uh, bolster the case that it was non-consensual? Uh, you might think that. However, you know, if someone is, say, vaginally penetrated, I mean, the vagina is meant to accommodate a child. So often there are no tears or tears aren't necessarily indicative that a crime occurred. Mm-hmm. Right. That's true. I didn't think about that. Um, often if there's sort of, you know, it depends, vaginal tears, anal tears, oral tears inside the mouth. I mean, right. None of those things necessarily equal a crime. So that's the catchy part. Another really catchy piece is if a person just wants to know if they were raped or just wants the results of the exam but can't face making a statement to the police or even think about the possibility of going to trial at some point, there's no way, at least right now, in New York State to have a kit analyzed without making a police report. And is that something that you think is fair or something you'd like to change? Something I'd very much like to change. So it's probably just a matter of budget. Possibly. Or indifference. It's it's a real dilemma for some people. Oh, the warmth of bureaucracy. <laughs> exactly. Um, I feel like I got sidetracked there. but um, I'm good at that. As far as sort of the legality, so let, let, let's just assume that someone has come in for an examination. SVU has picked up the kit. A statement has been made. You know, the patient has you know, sort of made written an affidavit. The person has been arrested. The next step is that the alleged perpetrator has to be indicted by the grand jury, and that usually happens. They want that to happen, you know, within a number of days from the date of the arrest. You know, sometimes it's as quick as 24 hours, sometimes it's three days, but generally within the week. Um, the perpetrator, the alleged perpetrator, does not have to appear. Only the victim has to appear with her lawyer. And if the grand jury believes there's enough evidence to move forward, they will hand out an indictment, and then a trial date will be set. Sometimes you never move beyond the that stage because no indictment is handed down. However, often if a client, I will, I will say to a client, you know, look, let's say you're not sure if you want to go forward. You're kind of ambivalent. You might not totally remember what happened. You might have some snapshot memories. You're not clear if something even happened. Maybe you're making this up. Um, I would advise a person in that situation to contact someone from the district attorney's office um, in the sex crimes division and have a consultation. And... In general, the sex crimes ADAs that I've worked with are fantastic, and they're 
extremely dedicated and committed to what they do. And compassionate. And compassionate. I mean, as much as a lawyer can be, most of them. <laughs> don't, be, don't be offended, <laughs> lawyer not, friends out there. I mean, there. yes, they're not therapists, but no. they are very, you know, good at getting the information that they need and telling a person, look, we believe you, but we really don't feel like this is something we can move forward with. There's just it boils down to there's not enough here. And sometimes my job then at that point is to help the client tolerate that in a criminal justice sense, this will never go forward. And they're not going to get justice, in quotes, within the criminal justice context. So that's something I'm very interested in, are other forms of justice. And what, what does that mean? And what does that look like? I've gotten so many emails from people that think what happened to them wasn't uh, valid because it w- isn't prosecutable. Um, I know you just briefly touched on that, but expound on on what that means to a person's healing and how you overcome that hurdle for them to give weight to what happened to them. I think a lot of it is, as I said, sort of just helping them tolerate that this cannot go forward for whatever reason. Um, telling them that you believe them, and and the ADA generally is is very you know good about telling them that as well, um, and and encouraging them to sort of honor their instincts, and regardless of whether there's any prosecution or not, they they hold that person responsible for what happened to them. And it's it's a process. Is it rare the person who can quickly make peace and understand that their experience isn't being invalidated even it, though this court system I think there I think it depends on the person. I think so some people can some people can especially people who are very kind of uh, analytical or right-brained or, you know, tend to intellectualize things. They can kind of say, okay, well, I understand this. I get this. It sucks. But it is what it is. I still know what happened. You know, I'm being supported by you and whoever else this happened. And this is all I can do in this sense. I mean, of course, there's always civil court as well, but I don't work so much with that. And so then do you do you ever testify on behalf of people? I have. What's that like? Terrifying. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're very well prepared as to what questions you're going to be asked by both the uh, defense and the prosecution. Um, often, you know... If the client's going to trial, then he or she is pretty much okay with having, you know, records subpoenaed, which will sort of back up the narrative. Um, but it's it's hard to feel like, you know, then if someone isn't, if there isn't a satisfactory outcome that you haven't somehow failed that person. I can't imagine. Yeah. I will say that... You know, there have been, you know, many, many cases over the years that I've, you know, either testified at or just been there for someone as a support 
because um, often people don't want their mother to come or their boyfriend to come or their best friend to come because they have to retell their story and they are very protective over the people they love and they don't want to first of all they don't want to worry the people they love and second of all often it makes their life harder because then they have to worry about that person's worry so i try to honor that and i I can tell you and i know you know this but i guess this is for the listener um part of what's so difficult is when you retell what happened to somebody who you don't know whether or not they're safe to recount what happened there's this really exposed feeling of oh this picture this person is having to picture what happened yes to me and it's um it's you just feel exposed and really small and responsible for other people's feelings including your own but responsible um there's something that i don't know if it's been brought up in any of your episodes but there's something called an impact statement that a client uh can make to the to the court to the judge before sentencing and that's often a very effective tool um, as well as a cathartic thing for the client to write and basically the the purpose of it is I mean it can be as long or short as the person wants it to be um, I'll help edit it if it, if it if necessary is it usually read the, yes and the client can either read it him or herself or it can just be handed to the judge or the ADA can it, anybody can do it I mean see, I think this year I've been to two trials where the clients have read out loud you know with the perpetrator sitting 15 feet away um, the impact that this crime has had on that person. How much are their voices shaking and their hands shaking when they're doing that? <laughs> I think in both instances I've held their hands and walked up to the sort of the stand with them um but, you know, I am always just in awe of the tenacity and the bravery and the resilience and the survivability, really, of my clients. And I'm not saying that everybody can do this or should do this, but in the cases where there hasn't been a satisfactory sort of criminal justice outcome, I've never had anyone regret writing an impact statement or having it read or reading it themselves. What are some, as you recall, all the impact statements that you've witnessed? What are some thoughts and memories or commonalities that spring to mind? Often just the sense of a person's loss of feeling safe in the world, that this kind of thing can occur no matter how well they plan for things and how well they try to structure their time um, that that they're vulnerable and we're all vulnerable um, the impact that it might have on their loved ones what happened to them and the feeling like I said before of being responsible for the feelings of their loved ones um, and how it's impacted their intimate relationships um, 
can be very hard to bear witness to. Of course, that's some of the work we do in treatment as well. I would imagine anxiety, depression. You know, and and there's a lot of other things, too, you know, missed days at work. I mean, there's sort of financial considerations, you know, if they were also physically assaulted when they were sexually assaulted, if they were robbed. I mean, there's so many different levels. Um, I'll tell you two very stark differences in the sex crimes sort of court is stranger rape or assault versus acquaintance rape or assault. Juries are much more sympathetic to stranger assaults. Um, I think society is much more <laughs> uh, understanding of that as well. It becomes much more difficult when it was somebody you went on a date with or your uncle or your basketball coach. Um, there's a disconnect there. People can't quite get the right, can't get the empathy for that so much. But if it's stranger, then that's sort of everybody's worst fear, worst fear, you know, sort of the person in the dark alley coming after you, sort of, you know, everybody can kind of identify with that fear. And yet, aren't the majority of uh, assaults or abuses done by somebody you know? I'm, I don't know the percentages, but I would say, you know, with my clients, I, you know, 80% are people that the person knows. Um, but it's the stranger assaults that generally go to trial and get convictions. And yet those are probably the hardest to find the perpetrator then, right? Uh, sometimes. Although yeah. I guess with databases now, it's yeah probably a little easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will also say that, uh, interestingly enough, um, female jurors are the least are less sympathetic towards rape victims than male jurors. Why do you think that is? I think that is because that it's cognitive dissonance, really. You know, you, you can't you can't wrap your head around the fact that this could happen to you, so there must be some reason why this per- person in particular was assaulted. You know, whether it was she stayed out too late, what she wore, she drank too much, um... I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten or surveys I've read where somebody had a lot to drink and so they blame themselves or say, I shouldn't have been in that place. I shouldn't have let that person walk me home. I shouldn't have had that last drink. I should have been watching my drink. You know, they were drugged. And it breaks my heart because um, none of those make it. I don't care if you if you pass out naked in an alley that doesn't give somebody the right, right to touch you. Absolutely. I mean, and I say that. I say, I don't care if you were, you know, <laughs> naked, flirting, drunk, high, anything. It, it doesn't give the right, someone the right to assault you. Or in the middle of intercourse and you change your mind. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the person you're with suddenly said something that was triggered you. That other person does... Have not have the right, right to to continue it. And it's funny, you know, you and I were talking before we started recording, and we have both had stuff happen to us as kids or adolescents, and we both know better, but we both <laughs> minimize what happened to <laughs> yes, us. Yes, absolutely. It's not funny, but I laugh anyway. 
because as as educated as I might be in this area and as long as I've done this work, which has been over 15 years now, um, you know, sort of intellectually I get it, but emotionally it's still something I struggle with. And, and when she shared it with me, I high-fived her across <laughs> yes. the table and we laughed. It was like, it's nice to know I'm not alone. Right. It's nice to know I'm not alone. I really struggle with this idea of cons- consent and consensual sex. Um, there's no such thing as non-consensual sex. That's just rape. And, you know, with the whole sort of movement uh, with the White House and college campuses, you know, working on their sexual assault policies, they're trying to develop for each, you know, university, college, you know, sort of this definition of what is consent. And uh, I think even California, where you're from, it was labeled sort of enthusiastic consent. Well, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean, yeah, I really want to do this? Does that mean, you know, your body secretes fluids? Because uh, that's not that's not indicative of consent as that far as I'm concerned. Yeah. <laughs> right. Orgasms happen during rape. Yes. Um, talk about clients you've had where they froze and perhaps their partner or the person having sex with them may not have been aware that something traumatic was happening to this person. Yeah. Um, I think that particularly when you when alcohol is involved in the mix, that a person can be seemingly sort of alert and walking and talking and not, you know, sort of passed out in an unconscious state. But in fact, he or she are incapacitated. And by definition, you cannot consent to sexual activity when you are incapacitated. Um, so you would be talking about maybe emotional incapacitation where right. where you shut down, maybe you're triggered by something or you weren't raised in a household where there were boundaries and you knew how to advocate for yourself. Well, that's true as well. And I always try to, you know, tell someone that walks into my office after an assault. I mean, look, you survived. That's whatever you did. You survived. Whether you fought back, whether you didn't fought, fight back. You're here. You're sitting here. Maybe you wish you weren't at the moment, but you did what you did. You did what you had to do in that moment to survive. And there's no judgment on 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 that. So, how do you? What are the pitfalls then of helping that person heal? That where there's the disconnect between <clears throat> what they experienced and what the person who was with them experienced. What what? What is your job then as a therapist to to help them with to to give weight to their feelings and to and to say yes, and that the the person that did this is not here in the room with us, so we're going to focus on you. Um, I think it's easy to focus on well what it was he thinking or I'm going to say he, although it's not always he. Um, what was he thinking or you know was he as drunk as I was or. I think that's a way to kind of avoid talking about, you know, yourself and what you're feeling. So I try to kind of put that 
keep that out of the room. I mean, I allow for that kind of talk, but at the same time, I really want to focus on what you're thinking because we can't figure out what someone else was thinking or feeling because they're not with us. Yet it's the great obsession, I believe, of all of us survivors is to want to know what was going on in, in the mind of the person that sexually abused us. Yes. And it's hard to, like I said earlier about invincibility and about that the world is a dangerous place, a lot of the people I work with are young women who are in college or just post-college, and and they have, many of them, never considered that this kind of thing could happen to them. Um, And it really puts you in touch with there are, there's evil in the world, and there are people that are out there to do you harm. Um, and I think that many of the people that commit these kinds of crimes are habitual offenders. Um, you're probably not their first victim, and you're certainly not going to be their last victim. And often a survivor will pursue a case based on that alone, not so much that she might want to do this for herself, but she doesn't want this to happen to anyone else. And that for for you that's um that's not something that you try to dissuade or change his or her mind about not necessarily that 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 she he or she is not doing this for themselves that they're doing it for the greater good because ultimately i would imagine for them to heal yes they have to <laughs> think about themselves and what they're feeling and face their pain and and how shitty the world can be and and all of that other stuff absolutely to to bring the fact the focus back to themselves so is that one of those things where you're like secretly to yourself you're like okay (laughs) but my mission is we're going to ultimately bring this back to to her and not about um or make sure it at least includes yeah um, i think i think both can be very valid reasons to go forward um but certainly yes i mean i ultimately do want to get to uh, that you all you also deserve um justice if that's what you decide to do at least criminally what do you advise um somebody who comes to you and there's no dna evidence um and they they need support beyond therapy beyond just coming to your your office what like what are would it be support groups yeah i mean there's you would think there would be a lot of support groups in a place like new york city but they actually are hard to to find Uh, particularly for someone who's either underinsured or uninsured um treatment is hard to find in general there there aren't um Free support groups? There are free support groups. Yeah, sort of anonymous, sort of along the lines of AA or NA, yes. But, you know, I think you're, it's sort of an an unknown. It's not a group that's necessarily facilitated by someone who is trained in working with trauma. I see. Um, But groups like that do exist, especially at rape crisis programs around the city. Rape and Incest National Network is is one of Yeah, a lot of people come to us actually through RAIN. Um, and a lot of people just kind of word of mouth or going on the internet, looking at programs. I can tell you support groups have been hugely, hugely helpful to me, even though it wasn't uh, moderated by by anybody. 
Um, one of the things I've learned in healing, you know, both with uh, alcoholism and drug addiction and uh, surviving sexual abuse has been the comfort of similar stories. Yeah. There is nothing like the comfort of similar stories. Absolutely. It's the opposite of what I shared with you, that feeling when you're recounting it to somebody who you might not feel safe with Mm -hmm. and they're like, oh, they're picturing me and this is making me feel naked and gross and exposed. Um, It's the opposite of that. It's because you know they've they've experienced. Right. And they may not have the same feelings or thoughts or experiences, but there's that sense of sort of unconditional positive regard, which I think is, is vital. Whether it's an individual treatment or group treatment. What are some other things that you'd like to share with the listener? Sorry about that. We had to take a break for uh, for a second. Um, What what are some other things you'd like to talk about? One thing I think that, that the general public is not aware of is that in most states, and this is something that I I don't know how to spread this information better uh, but maybe this podcast will do the trick um, <clears throat> a lot of people hesitate come to come to an emergency room after an assault because they think I could never afford this how am I gonna you know this is gonna cost thousands of dollars and they they won't go even to get sort of medical care if they need or just to make sure everything is okay they don't have to have an you know a forensic exam per se but they won't go because they don't have money or they're uninsured <clears throat> most states have an office of victim services where if a person comes to the emergency room a sexual assault forensic exam is going to be paid for they should never get billed for it uh, so they would just go to their nearest hospital and and uh, how do they go about finding that? Just go to the hospital and say, well, is, I mean, do if I you're in crisis and you wake up passed out on the sidewalk and 911 brings you to a hospital, you're going to, I guess, go where they take you. Um, but there are hospitals that are considered safe centers of excellence, um, which you can Google and find out where in your community have those. But you should not be, be, be billed for an examination post-assault. That didn't even occur to me that somebody could be billed for that. It happens <laughs> all the time. And that's one of the things that, you know, I will help a client with if a client does get a bill or something like that. Um, you know, I'll work with the Office of Victim Services, which in New York is in Albany, um, to make sure that it's paid for. Um, however, if someone decides after an assault that they want to take uh, HIV prophylaxis, if what's that post-exposure um, to possible HIV, um, which they are given in the hospital, they're given uh, I think three days in the hospital, and then they have a follow-up appointment uh, with a clinic where I work, where they continue for another. 27 days is a 30-day treatment but if someone wants to take the HIV prophylaxis if that person is insured then unfortunately um, their insurance will be billed for that and how was that administered orally it's a pill yeah okay it's a uh, many 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 pills taken over the course of 30 days which can often make someone very sick and not feel very well and um but some people really, you know, feel like they'd rather be safe than sorry. And I recently 
uh, worked with a woman who was brutally sexually assaulted by a stranger um, and took the HIV prophylaxis. And after the perpetrator was indicted, it was found that he was HIV positive. Um, and she may not have contracted it anyway, but it was she was so happy that she took it and tolerated the course because you know i think now it's been 18 months she's you know she's still she's hiv free so that's great it is and they and then they'll also give you a series of you know antibiotics to fight other stds and you know uh plan b if you you know are concerned that you might have gotten pregnant from an assault um, do you have any men come in? Yes. Um, more women than men, but yes, men. Um, transgender clients. Uh, I work with partners of people who have been abused as well to provide support. People that you know really want to know how to best help their partner and say the right things and how they can best support them and understand sort of why certain things might be happening in their sort of relationship. And what do you tell them? What are some of the things that you work and share with them? Uh, a lot of education about post-traumatic stress disorder what and it how looks that's, like. how, you know, what that looks like, how it's manifested, how it can affect, you know, sort of the desire for intimacy or lack thereof. Um, what are some other what things for the partner to um, recognize as being a part of what happened and a process that they're going through? Yeah, uh, a lot of it is about not taking everything personally that a person might, you know, if a person, for example, if you're, you know, if you're engaging in sexual activity and your partner recoils or dissociates um, to understand that that's probably not about you. That's probably a result of the trauma he or she experienced. But just to be sure, make sure you're brushing your teeth. <laughs> exactly. Um, but one other thing I wanted to touch upon as well is, you know, this the the shame and stigma that is attached to um, perhaps experiencing pleasure or your body reacting um, after being abused, whether it's as a child or teen or an adult. Um, I think it's important to allow permission for those conversations, which a person can accept or reject. However... You're saying initiating those conversations uh, as a therapist. Yeah, yeah. is important. Um, because people do experience pleasure and your body does react to stimuli. And I often use this sort of onion analogy. When you chop an onion, you cry. Uh, it's not because you're sad. It's because of the whatever in the onion. Um, you know, when someone touches your genitals or your private parts in a certain way, your body reacts. Um, and to try to destigmatize that and have that not equal then oh well I must have enjoyed it I must have consented if my body responded to it yeah uh, you know one of the things I like to say on the podcast is your body and your soul can experience two very different things at the same time 
Absolutely. And it can be very confusing. And, you know, I often have people that come in years after they've been abused and they they think they've been doing okay. And, and most and a lot of them have have been sort of outwardly, at least very high functioning. Um, but I always say sort of what the mind forgets, the body does hold on to. And you have to integrate those things in order to kind of move forward. What are some of the things that you encounter uh, with other than um, somebody shutting down sexually? Uh, some things that patterns that you see in survivors of how it affects their sexuality. Uh, a lot Obviously, of, promiscuity. Yeah, a lot of sort of hypersexuality. Um, a lot of dissociation, not your mind not being, or your emotions not being present at all during any sort of sexual activity. Feeling numb. Yeah, feeling numb. Um, Something I, I, I would feel a lot um, before I dealt with it is I would be okay once we got going during having sex, but I dreaded the initiation yeah. of of sex and felt like I was a terrible person, like something was wrong with me. I had no idea that it, that it was related to stuff that had happened to me as a, as a kid. Right. Yeah. And you know, ideally sexuality is sort of a basic need, sort of like food and shelter. And it's sort of, it's, you know, I want my clients to have satisfying sexual lives and it's very possible, but you have to go through it to get to the other side of it. There's no other way. And I always tell everyone that walks in my door, this is going to get harder before it gets easier. I was just talking with somebody about that <laughs> last night. I said that the beginning of the healing feels like somebody has scooped your chest out with a bulldozer. And, and you just want to lay on the floor and die. Yeah. But it gets better. It gets better from there. But it takes a lot of help. It takes, it takes a, lot a lot of, of help, and it can come in waves, and that's to be expected. It's sort of like any sort of other, you know, recovery, you know, for example, from alcohol. I mean, you're going to have slips. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have moments, but you're not, you're not cursed to have this black cloud following you for the rest of your life. Um, Talk about... Um, sexual fantasies that may be left in the wake of abuse or trauma yeah I mean I think that I mean an example I can give you is um, I work with a woman who has uh, a child who now is maybe eight years old and she was abused at about his age and she is terrified she is going to molest her son um, she has never done anything like that but it's almost become this obsessive thought that she can't let go of um, so just allowing her to talk about that is important um, and I think there's a huge difference between thinking about doing something and doing something and ultimately what brought her to see me was that she didn't want to sort of place the sins of the father, as it were, on her offspring. And as she processed what had happened to her with you, was there a decrease in what she felt? Absolutely. And is that common? Yes. 
So it's in many ways a brain's reaction to a pain that it didn't want to feel. Right. I mean, I think the more sort of internalized something is and the more secret something is, the more shameful it's going to be until you articulate it and uh, sort of bear witness to it and tolerate it it's going to remain this terrifying thought. So in, in her case, was it something where it was more of an intrusive thought than a yes. something that was bringing up sexual feelings in her? Yeah, it okay. was for her. Uh, how about things in terms of something being a turn-on uh, to somebody? Do clients share, share that with you and they're feeling like they're... Um, like it, it meant that they wanted it or um yeah i mean i think you know we've all sort of read books watched tv we've heard about rape fantasies um i mean you know. one of the things that I, I think people don't understand is that rape victims can have rape fantasies even about the person that had raped them yes and i think a lot of people would be surprised to know that and some might not even realize that that's the brain's way of, of trying to process that or go back in a time machine and change it. But but talk talk more about that, how common it is, and how you work with a client to, to help them get rid of that shame. Well, I think, I think that the answer is already in your question, is that you talk about it and put it into words, and that saying these things out loud isn't going to destroy you i mean obviously if you're going to act on it that's a different story and then you know i would have to do my job whatever that might mean um but educating someone on sexual trauma and the effects it can have you know sort of both cognitively emotionally physically uh sort of what trauma does to the brain and the body. I think that's such an important conversation for therapists in this field to have with their clients. Um, that this is, these things, these various things we're discussing are to be expected. It doesn't mean you're crazy. <laughs> um, and that people move on from this if they apply themselves. Talk about what a client when they do when the things that you share with them about what is normal and they take it in and they embrace it as truth what that's like for them i mean i have had clients literally break down in tears when i explain that this is what post-traumatic stress looks like you know these thoughts that you are having about you know wanting to you know jump in front of a train or feeling disconnected from your body um having periods of time that are completely missing that you can't account for this is what trauma looks like and that is the biggest relief it's kind of like having a medical problem you know you want to know what it is you want to know and even if you find out it's something horrific you know i'll, I'll say cancer the knowing <laughs> is is a relief it's a relief to know the not knowing the not understanding the feeling like you're going crazy that's what's intolerable and what does it feel like for you as a therapist to be able to witness that and to know that you um help guide them to that place 
uh, well, I mean, I'm not going to lie and say that it's not satisfying and gratifying. I mean, I think I, like you, I, I find it, I'm deeply honored to be doing the kind of work I'm doing. Um, that people trust me enough to open themselves up to sort of things that are secret, secretive or shameful. Um, but it's not completely altruistic either. I mean, I didn't go into this field by accident. Uh, um, I don't know that it, most people do, you know. I, I probably went into it somewhat for selfish reasons, at least initially, trying to figure out my own shit. Um, do you want to expound on that? You don't have to if you don't want to, because I know... Well, being a survivor um, of a family with extremely poor boundaries, um, where you weren't allowed to express anger or upset, where you had to act as if everything were fine all the time, um, I get it. I think it. that's called suburbia. <laughs> that could be. I get it. And that is the most invalidating thing ever. If if you want to ensure that your child will make poor decisions as an adult, invalidate their feelings as yes. a child. Validate, minimize, shut them down. Shame them. Shame them. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. No. So give for a parent that, that, that might be listening to this podcast who, when their child acts out or has an outburst or is behaving in some way that is high management for the parent. How should the parent ideally react in a situation like that that enforces boundaries but um, doesn't shame the child or invalidate them? Well, you want to have a, a sort of, you know, obviously an age-appropriate conversation with your child about, you know, what is behind this behavior. I mean, it, it generally is not coming from nowhere, um, I mean, sometimes you do have to rule out some sort of medical um, condition or um, what word am I trying to think of? Uh, Personality disorder? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Mental illness, yes. Um, but generally, I mean, children cannot often put their words their feelings into words, especially young children. Adults and, can and, often not put well, their feelings into words. This is oh true. my God. But it's your job as a parent to help verbalize, you know, what the child is might be feeling and give them permission to accept that or reject what you're saying, but to put it into words and that you're okay with tolerating their anger, their upset. You're not going to allow them to be abusive. Um, but there's reason, maybe there's very good reason for that child to to be angry and sad. And and I would imagine, I'm not a parent, but um, to let them know that that's common, to, to feel what they're feeling. And the thing that we want to focus on is the way that we ex express it. Because yeah. we have control over that. And that any to. feelings that you have are not good or bad. They're just feelings. It's what you do with them that's what's important. And maybe that the feelings aren't going to be there forever. Exactly. I think that's one of the things I forget, even as an adult, is when I get sad or I get depressed or I get angry, is 
I get impatient and I want that feeling to change. Right. And like I was saying before with, you know, sexual abuse survivors, you know, it does come in waves and you're going to have bad days and you're going to have moments where you feel like you're in a black hole. Um, but you want to try to help a person not catastrophize in any particular moment and that those dips in and out are to be expected. Is, you know, that, that black and white thinking, the, the catastrophizing uh, or um, having unrealist, unrealistic, unrealistic <laughs> expectations um, in the positive sense, are those common things for people who have um, been raised in invalidating in- environments absolutely. that are kind of black and white. Absolutely. And it's almost, in a way, I think it's it's so habitual that people don't even realize they're doing it. So one thing is kind of pointing it out and saying, you know, do you see that you see things in this way? You know, it's very, it's sort of this catastrophic, you know, it's either all in or all out. Um, and once a person is aware that they're doing that to give them tools to broaden how they experience things and how they see things and that they don't have to sort of give in to every sort of emotional feeling that they have, that they can have some reality testing. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about your story, being a therapist, working with people in crisis, the system? (laughs) The system needs a lot of work. <laughs> um, even though there's wonderful people in this field, you know, whether it's social work or psychology or the legal profession, I mean, there's some amazing people, but you were working still in a very limited system um, where a survivor has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt da- her story is not good enough. There has to be something else. And I think, you know, luckily there has been so much more dialogue about sexual violence and, you know, within this larger system of patriarchy um, that I think that we're moving in the right direction. I think there needs to be a lot more primary prevention going into schools, going into elementary schools with children as young as, you know, three and four years old, talking about body parts, talking about, you know, it's not okay for someone to touch you in certain places. There there has to be more emphasis on prevention. And, and I think a great thing would be would be to emotionally educate children to understand, to be able to articulate what it is that they're feeling and to know that their feelings are valid there's just healthy or unhealthy ways of expressing them i mean jesus if i if i could have had that knowledge when i was in first grade and to understand the penetrating Mm -hmm. sadness that i felt um i don't know maybe i wouldn't have been able to articulate it but i um it would have been a start to understand to break that what would then be decades long um stretch of automatically thinking that I'm wrong. Right. And if you're being told, well, you shouldn't feel that way, don't feel that way, then, you know, you're gone. You're lost. Um, but to trust your instincts. If something feels ick, then, you know, it's worth paying attention to. Your, your body can really be your best friend. Absolutely. If, if you get to that place. What do we have to do for a body to go from being our enemy to our friend? 
in terms of trusting our gut? Paying attention. If something doesn't feel right, then it probably isn't. And that all begins with, you know, initiating it, adults, initiating dialogue with children about, you know, how to keep their bodies safe and healthy. So maybe look out for the red flag thought, which is I shouldn't be feeling this. Yes. I'm a bad person for I'm a selfish person for feeling dread when I'm around this. I try person. very hard to keep should out of my room. I treat my room. Because that's a bad word. You feel what you feel. It may not be reality, though. It's feeling. And there's a good chance if you heal that you're not going to feel that feeling in the abundance that you're feeling it currently. And, you know, I'm also, and as you probably know from doing this kind of work, it's like anything else. Once you tell somebody what happened to you, you know, 10, 15, 20 people say, oh my God, that happened to me too. It's like anything else. It's like, you know, whether it's, you know, drinking too much or having a sexually transmitted disease. Oh, wow. Me too. (laughs) I mean, it's that, that, that the secrecy is what kills us. The secrecy and the shame. I mean, that's why I started the shame and secret survey and it's probably my favorite, favorite survey to read. Because it's the one that helps me feel less alone, almost more than any other survey. And and you were saying earlier when we were speaking, just having, whether it's a support group, whether it's friends, your partners, I mean, you do have to have people to, you know, either talk about your work with, the struggles you're having, or have a laugh with, because, you know, secondary trauma is a real thing, and bearing witness to people's pain is a very intense thing to experience and you cannot do it in isolation well as i told you i'm lucky because i'm dead inside so it all <laughs> it all rolls off my cold cold skin well there you go <laughs> um i can't tell you how gratifying well i i know you know this but when i get an email from somebody who says your constant mentioning of therapy and support groups finally got through to me and I went and oh my god but you can imagine how terrifying this is because once you put it out there you can't stuff it back in (laughs) and there may be that initial dip of all the lavas coming out right which is why it's important I think for people to know you know you are going to feel worse first but this is the poison if you know what out. to expect, then I think you're you know you're in a much better headspace than if you go in with you know some sort of notions that aren't realistic. Uh, if people want to ask Merritt a question, uh, there's a thread for ask a, ask a uh, mental health professional. I believe that's what it's called in the forum. Although you are a super busy person, <laughs> you're also a, a, a wife and a mom. Yes. And uh, in addition to doing all this other stuff, so um, you can't promise that you'll immediately uh, get back to it. But um, I just want to thank you so much for doing what you do. Um, being a supporter of the podcast, helping me when I was really struggling with some of my questions, and um, and you're just being so uh, 
so supportive. So. Yeah, and thank you. This was this was lovely, and uh, you also are doing an invaluable service in just sort of normalizing this kind of thing. Thank you. So, thank you. There's something that we that that we forgot to talk about, and after we stopped recording, um, we started talking about uh, disassociation, and that's something that you deal with a lot in in clients. And I was like, oh, we have to record this because I get a lot of emails from people who want to hear more about that, um, especially uh, people with DID, disassociative. Uh, um, identity disorder, which is a lot of times what people think is schizophrenia. Right, which uh, is not. It's not psycho- multiple. It's person- not psychosis. It's not psychosis. It's multiple <laughs> uh, identities. Yes, um, which are more or less they're a coping mechanism that developed to help someone survive an intolerable situation. So, you know, um, I have a, I had a woman I worked with for years who had sort of at least as far as I know five sort of distinct different personalities you know from sort of one being a young child to one being a teenager um, to the one she kind of presented the most in my office who I believe was sort of the primary and the rest were alters Um, but it took years to even identify that this was happening because her stories didn't add up. Things wouldn't make sense. And and not that they were, like, sort of not believable, but there were just something wasn't adding up. And I would always feel so confused. But then we realized that she would be missing hours, days of time where she had no sort of recollection of any of those events. So is that, is that usually the beginning of the trail that... That there was, yes. And so, but I think she felt that she was, this meant she was crazy. And so, not only did she not have the words to kind of articulate that this was happening, but she was so afraid that I was going to say she was crazy and admit her to a psychiatric hospital that she was afraid to even bring this up. So, it took sort of a lot of perseverance and patience and support to even sort of begin discussing this with her and what she she had no idea that she had multiple personalities when she came in she i don't think she would have called them that um i think she thought that there were these parts of her that's how she described them as parts which is what they are um but that mean, meant that she must be so completely crazy that she could never admit this to anybody. But once we revealed, once we sort of uncovered sort of her just horrific sort of ritual abuse, so she was actually part of a, in a pedophile ring in a small town um, where her father was sort of the principal uh, abuser, um, she was able to see that these parts developed as a way to keep her sane and even though the goal and I use that in quotes of working with DID is to integrate these parts I did not feel that that was the course for her because I think that that would have caused her to have a complete actually probably have a complete psychotic break 
Um, of course, I wanted to make sure she was safe. Um, and she had been engaging in sort of some high risk behaviors that were shut off to her at certain times. Um, what do you mean shut off to her at certain times that one, one part of her wouldn't remember? Well, yeah. Um, sort of one part of her personality or one part of her was soliciting sex, um, from strangers, um, and she would find money, go to the bank machine, and there would be all this money missing from her account. And she couldn't remember anything that had happened. Um, so, of course, I wanted to make sure she was safe. and But to kind of put all those parts back together was not um, our goal. How do you get trained to deal with something that incredible? intense and complex. I'm not so sure that I was adequately trained for that. I mean, a lot of this, we were kind of in the trenches together with this. I mean, I sought a lot of sort of outside supervision. I became part of, you know, I joined some listservs that talked about sort of ritual abuse and um, multiple personalities. And a lot of it was self-taught, really. Kind of intuition, and with someone like her, I really had to be much more flexible with how I practiced um, psychotherapy. Um, a lot of our things were kind of some people might consider unorthodox. You know, letter writing. Uh, she would send text messages at different times um, from different people, parts of her. Uh, we used a lot of art therapy because um, she really couldn't put things into the words because a lot of her abuse occurred when she was pre-verbal. You were saying that, that you think about her almost every day. I do. I do. Um, you know, I developed, I mean, a real love for her, you know, and concern for her. And unfortunately, uh, when I stopped seeing her, you know, she was still... Uh, being trailed by different people, including her father. What do you mean literally trailed or haunted by the memories? No. I mean, her father would, you know, come to New York, take her to hotels, force her to have sex with him and other men. Um, And because she was an adult, there was nothing that you could do about it? Or was, is that not your place? Right. I mean, there was nothing I could do. Because if she was a 15-year-old. Right. I would have been had to ethically sort of report. But she did not want to move. She actually did consult with the district attorney's office. Um, and as far as the early abuse from her early childhood, because she was in her mid twenties when we met, um, the statute of limitations had expired in the state of Texas. So there was no pursuing that. And that was uh, just for her, the end, she said, well, if I can't pursue that, then why pursue any of this other stuff? She didn't feel like it was worth it. Cause that was the worst of it for her. So how, if on the one hand she wanted to, she went to the district attorney, how would she why then, on the other hand, would she go to the hotel with her father? Was she afraid of him? Because she wasn't her. 
Ah. She was a different personality. So it was maybe the little girl. This that- was the this was the this was the the part of her that was um, a prostitute that had anonymous sex and that was the person she was so she didn't always have access to that part the rest of the parts would go silent at that point so she didn't have the executive functioning i I guess was there a caretaker part of her personality a a responsible um self-advocating part yeah and i think that was the part that mostly showed up in my room (laughs) which she often but she felt you know she would often say that the other parts would become very angry with her if she would say certain things during our session um, and tell her to kill herself. And it was very complex. Wow. My, uh, I hear a lot of stuff doing I mean, the podcast. I really did feel that ultimately she needed to be in a hospital um, because trying to do work with her, you know, and I saw her twice a week, which was my capacity at that time. It was just beyond what I was capable of doing. And I felt like she needed to be in a safe place because she wasn't safe in her life to do this work. And she, she just would not or could not do that. Talk about, and and then you eventually, uh, stopped seeing her because of why? Because of that, I, I, I really felt very strongly that sort of she needed more than I could offer and I knew that I wasn't going to stop working with her, but she needed additional help and she just couldn't take it. Talk about dissociation outside of somebody with DID. I mean, I think we all dissociate to a certain extent. I mean, you know, if you go on a long road trip, for example, a couple hours, you might realize, oh, shit, I've just been driving for four hours and I kind of spaced on it. I mean, this is it's normal to have some of that. But when you when you actually lose and have no access to periods of time, that's an indication that it's diagnostic and that there's generally some precipitating reason that this is happening. And is it even around events that aren't traumatic that you lose the time Uh, or i guess you don't know because you don't remember (laughs) exactly but maybe you could hear from somebody else oh yeah you were you don't remember going to the you know the market with us right um i mean with this client a lot of what we did was sort of we did some detective work we had her sort of write things down at certain places and notice what she was wearing at certain times and take pictures of herself and you know sometimes it was successful and sometimes it wasn't and so talk about dissociation outside of um you did a little bit but uh, outside of that outside of the um, multiple personality um well i think that you know in the context of sort of sexual abuse at least because that's what we're talking about um Situations like that, when you are a victim of molestation or abuse, can feel like they are annihilating. And so it is a healthy defense to go somewhere else in your body or in your mind. Can you book it through Expedia? (laughs) Unfortunately, no. (laughs) No rewards. 
Um, but it's a healthy it's actually a healthy defense because it kept the person sane and it kept them alive. Um, so I always honor people's defenses. Um, you know, I don't want to break down someone's defenses, at least until they have coping skills to be able to survive not having those defenses. Um, but the, the recognition that they adapted to a situation that was horrifying, um, and survived it, that often provides a lot of comfort for someone. It must be incredibly comforting for somebody to go from thinking, I'm a fucking idiot that has a terrible memory, to understanding that this was kind of this awful, beautiful way that their body was advocating. Absolutely. And if anyone is interested, I mean, um, someone who's done a lot of writing on this is... uh, Bessel van der Kolk. He's done a lot of work on the brain, a lot of work about dissociation and post-traumatic stress. It's it's heady stuff, though, so yeah. not for a lay person necessarily, but... Uh, anything else on uh, dissociating? Well, you know, in my office, I mean, we'll often work on ways of having to help a person sort of stay in the present, you know, whether that might mean um, running their hands under cold water, wearing a rubber band around their uh, wrist that they snap, literally, to kind of stay present, doing some sort of grounding work, you know, keeping your feet on the ground, you know, feeling the air in the room, reminding themselves where they are, um, and that at that moment they are safe. They're not in a, a bad place because the dissociative memory, you feel like you're in that place experiencing that traumatic episode as if it's happening right here and now. So you want to provide tools to ground the person and help them cope and to stay present as much as possible. Anything else on that? I think uh, I think that's good. <laughs> Thank you. Many, many thanks to Merritt. What a, uh, what a sweet soul. Uh, I really enjoyed not only recording her, but uh, having lunch with her. And there's something so comforting about um, having an honest conversation with somebody who's, who's really compassionate and feeling felt. I just felt, I felt really... Um, felt by I want to say the word felt harder felt by her uh, anyway before we get to some surveys I want to give some love to our sponsor Squarespace uh, Squarespace I don't think there's any place better to design your own website than Squarespace I did it myself I thought if I'm going to uh, do advertising form I want to see if what they advertise is true and boy is it their uh, templates for you to build a website are so beautiful. They're so user-friendly. You don't have to know how to code anything. You just drag and drop things. Um, it, it it looks so professional. Uh, it took me about... I, I decided that I wanted to do a website where people could listen to uh, some of the music I've written and recorded or look at the uh, dog pictures that I've uh, that I've taken and uh, it couldn't have been simpler it took me from start to finish less than two hours to not only put the website together but to upload all of the song snippets and uh, and the dog pictures and uh, I love it it's, it's super intuitive 
Um, they have, uh, you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Um, it's, uh, they have 24-7 customer support. I mean, I can't say enough good things about it. So start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Um, when you do decide to sign up, uh, make sure that you use the offer code MENTAL and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. Um, just go to squarespace.com. Squarespace, build it beautiful. All right, let's get to some uh, some surveys. I think the odds are about 1 in 10 that I will get through this stack of surveys. Um, this first one is a struggle in a sentence survey. Oh, and I also want to remind you about that. Uh, I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but uh, please come out and see me if you're in the San Francisco or Oakland area um, Thursday night, July 21st at uh, Uptown Nightclub. Also, I'm going to be a part doing a, um, some uh, political satire on Friday night uh, January 22nd in San Francisco as a part of Sketchfest. I'm not sure of the name of the uh, the venue yet, but um, I'll put something on the website once I once I know that. All right, to the surveys. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself M. And about her depression, she writes, "Am I dead or alive right now? I'm not sure because I feel absolutely nothing." About her bulimia. My best friend and my worst enemy woven into three fingers down my throat. Wow, that is poetic. Snapshot from her life. Spraying perfume on food to prevent myself from binging again, only to dig it out of the trash at 4 a.m. and eat it anyway. Ha ha, fuck. Wow, that is a snapshot. Thank you for that. Man, the, the power of addiction never ceases to amaze me. This uh, was filled out by Katrina, and uh, she writes about living with an abuser. Even though he constantly abuses me, I cannot help but feel his pain. That is deep. That is deep. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Jim Jones Sips Sweet Kool-Aid, and about his depression, mourning for someone that never existed. That is poetic. Wow, you guys are bringing it. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Mertaza Penelope. For those of you that aren't hip uh, to the, the med, Mertazapine, that's a play on that. About her depression, like I can't drown my demons because they know how to swim. About her OCD, maybe if I swivel my heels 360 degrees on each street corner, my mom won't die of terminal cancer. Oh shit, I'm walking with company and I forgot to do it. Better start planning the funeral then. Uh, snapshot from her life. I really should shower, but shower means being alone with my disgusting body and seeing myself for the useless, fat piece of shit that I am. I guess eight days is a record. Maybe I'll shower before my therapy appointment, as that's the only time I need to leave the apartment anyway. Well, I just want to give you a hug. I know that feeling. I've never not showered for eight days, but um, you know I've gone two or three days and just looking at my greasy fucking face with just the pillow head that doesn't go away and uh, just counting the hours until I can go back to bed. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself unqualified caregiver. Uh, She's straight. She is in her 40s. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, when I was four, a family friend made me touch his penis. I went home, I went home and never told anyone. 
I was so unprepared, but I remember every detail. Not fair, exclamation point. She's been both physically and emotionally abused. My parents spanked, like all other parents in my social group, Catholic Deep South. But when I was a teenager, my mother became physically abusive for a short time. She was so stressed out. Four children born in three and a half years. I was the youngest and by far the most behaved. I think she thought that she could reach me or maybe she just knew that I wouldn't tell. But for the crime of mooning my brother, she used a vacuum cleaner extension and put bruises on my uh, from my back to my knees. I had to say the rosary all day on my knees in my room. It was humiliating and unprecedented. I was 13. I wore shorts for the next two weeks while the bruises healed and told anyone who asked what had happened. But that was the South in the late 70s. Most common response was, probably she had gotten me for all this stuff I didn't get caught doing. Uh, positive experiences with your your abusers. And this is, this is one of the reasons I wanted to read this is because so many of us struggle to hold the light and the dark parts of our caregivers at the same time. We, we think that the answer lies in them being one or the other when in reality they're often both. Um, positive experiences with your abusers. Um, uh, the rest of my life, before and after that summer, uh, she was a sweet mom when I was little. I was the youngest, so she and I got a year together alone when the others would go to school. We went to mass in the mornings. We went for walks in the woods. She knew every tree and bird. She would make up stories about the birds, what they wanted to say. That was my earliest good memory. One of my last ones was when my husband left me. I was 32, very underemployed, and so very depressed, not clinically, situationally. I called her crying one night, and she drove one and a half hours to my house and brought a six-pack of beer. We were both very occasional drinkers. She and I got a bit drunk and talked and laughed into the night. That is just, um, that's like a textbook example of how complex people can be, and I suppose and how overwhelming it can be to be a parent. Uh, darkest thoughts. I'm afraid of heights because I picture myself pushing someone or jumping. Darkest secrets. Uh, I once had an orgasm while breastfeeding. Uh, super common from, from what I'm told. Uh, I, I imagine, though, that's got to freak you the fuck out when that happens. That has got to be... I can't imagine how, how you couldn't feel um, sick, perverted, guilty. Um, it is a healthy woman who could experience that and, and not feel... Uh, fucked up experiencing that uh, so anybody who has experienced that i hope you know that, that you're not alone and that's a, a common thing sexual fantasy is most powerful to you i am really vanilla i don't really have a powerful sexual fantasy what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to i would i would tell my dad that i don't trust him he's excellent with money with business but he sucks at people i love him but i don't really like him very much I would tell my husband and my ex-husband that I am doing my absolute best in advocating for my daughter and I don't have time for bullshit defending in areas of therapists and medication. What, if anything, do you wish for? My student loans to disappear. A world where there were too many psychiatrists uh, so fees would go down and appointments were available. Trained professionals in schools who could deal with teen mental illness as something other than discipline problems. And world peace. Yeah, that too. 
Uh, have you shared these things with others? No, I'm so involved with the care of my kids, particularly my 15-year-old who suffers from ex- extreme anxiety and depression, that I don't explore the vulnerable parts of myself anymore. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like maybe I should be more honest with myself more often. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Advocating for our children with mental issues is simply too hard. Let people help you. Ask for all the help you can. Wow. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so, so much for that. This was filled out by Dawn. And she is in her 20s. She's bisexual. Uh, She uh, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. She doesn't uh, elaborate. Uh, She's been emotionally abused. Not sure if she's been physically abused. Uh, Darkest thoughts. There was a period of time where I, for some reason, got aroused by weird YouTube videos. I'm too ashamed to say what the videos were, but they were not erotic slash pornographic. I felt like I had a fetish for what I was aroused by, but over the years, I think, I hope, the interest has waned. I'm sorry this is so vague, but even in this supposed safe space, I'm too anxious to really feel safe. Um, Of course, we're all dying to know what it was. Um, And I have experienced that too before. I've experienced uh, arousal from from things that aren't, um, and I'm not the, you and I aren't the only ones. Uh, There's there's somebody I know who was actually a guest on this uh, show who um, she experienced the same thing. Darkest secrets. Every time winter rolls around, my depression worsens. Um, If that's as dark as your secrets get, I want your life. Uh, What best describes the environment you were raised in? Uh, A little dysfunctional. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I said before about the weird YouTube videos. I feel fucked up, perverted, ashamed. I don't mean to sexualize something as so normal as that. I don't know how it happened. Um... What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Uh, We were never friends, I realize now. You're an awful person to me. You sucked the soul out of me. What, if anything, do you wish for? I just want to hug Jeff Bridges. I think we all want to hug Jeff Bridges. He is, I would be amazed if he isn't just the sweetest guy because he just comes across so unimpressed with show business and, uh, and plus he's just so talented. I don't know if I've, there's ever been a movie that I've seen him in that I that I haven't liked him in. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, an unfamiliar ceiling. And uh, what what have people said or done that has helped you with your your issues? Her issues are anxiety, depression, PTSD, and depersonalization disorder. And she writes, having depersonalization disorder can feel like you're dreaming and the world around you is an empty void. I had an anxiety attack while hanging out with a friend outside. I ran inside to try to calm myself down and it wasn't working. He came in, sat next to me, and comforted me in a way no one has ever done. He knew just the right questions to ask. He listened to how I felt without judgment. He got my medication for me. He put his arm around me and kissed my forehead. I can't put into words how much I appreciate that he understood where I was with him at that moment, where I was at that moment, and how he got me back down to earth. Unfortunately, I can't tell him, but that was the day I fell in love with him. And I gotta say, I think we all fell in love (laughs) with him. My God, what a great guy. 
Let's pray that he's secretly a serial killer. Hmm? Just so the rest of us feel better about ourselves. I don't like people showing us up with their fucking balanced, compassionate, there for each other, not stuck in our own head and <laughs> being dicks. Uh, this... Uh, this was an email that I got from somebody. I just want to t- share the gist of it with you. She has bipolar disorder and she takes Latuda and it's super expensive. And she Googled uh, the medication to see if there was a coupon and the manufacturer actually has a coupon uh, that uh, can last for a whole year and it can greatly reduce the, the amount that you pay. And depending on the dosage and the quantity prescribed, you can get it for as low as 25 bucks a month. Uh, whereas before she was paying, uh, even with insurance, uh, 150 bucks. So uh, try Googling it. And I don't know if, if all pharmaceutical companies do that or how many of their meds they do that for. But if, uh, if you, money's an issue, which I think it is probably with 99% of us, um, try Googling it and see if there's a coupon. This was um, an email that I got from somebody who uh, wants to be referred to as confused patient. And she writes, um, I'm wondering if you can advise me on something. It has happened twice now where my therapist gets emotional about something I'm talking about to the point where we have to discuss why she is reacting that way and then how I am feeling about it. Her emotional reactions and then explanations for them that involve her own personal experience seemed reasonable the first time, even if it was inappropriate. I felt it came from a place of concern and care, but I feel differently about this second time. I feel judged by her for my own life decisions and feelings around a difficult and complex situation I was going through. She's the first and only therapist I've ever seen. I'm in my mid-30s and have been seeing her for two plus years, and our work aside from this issue has helped me tremendously. But this issue with her has been bothering me, and I haven't seen or made contact with her since the second incident about two weeks ago. Have you experienced this or heard of this happening to other people? I have heard of this happening to other people. And um, I feel like it's it's your call. Um, it, without seeing a, a video of how much she's reacting um, to what you're saying, uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to say because I had a therapist who sometimes when I would share the really painful stuff that happened to me, you know maybe I would see her eyes start to water up a little bit, but it never it it never distracted from what we were doing. You know it, if this person is kind of making it about them, or it's so large that it's such an elephant in the room that you have to address that it's about them, then I would find a, a, another therapist. And um, that might be good for her, too, to see that this is not acceptable behavior. But all that being said, you know, a therapist who sheds an occasional tear or gets choked up by something that their client is sharing with them can be a super healing thing for that that client. So... It's a, it's a hard one to say one way or the other, but I'd go with your gut. If your gut is telling you um, you should move to a different therapist, then I would I would listen to that. This was filled out by uh, Keely, and uh, she she writes, I think my whole life might be easier if I had a therapist who I didn't feel, <laughs> feel was a pushy asshole. 
I don't want a therapist who I dread seeing for the two days prior and who I feel like I can't be honest with. What's even the point? So my question to you is, how do I fire this lady? I have trouble overanalyzing people's reactions and feelings towards me. I have to remind myself that this lady hardly knows me and probably doesn't give a shit anyway, but I'm still uncomfortable with it. It's a clinic with many therapists on staff, so in my head, I'll fire her, go next week to a new therapist, and I'll see her in the office, looking at me with that, you fired me, Claire. I don't even want to go back into the building. Fuck, I don't even want to go to the bank next door to it. Uh, what would you say to a therapist who felt who you felt didn't really get you and who you were made to feel a little put on the spot by. Well, I wouldn't, I, I actually did this. I actually did fire a therapist and then started seeing a different therapist in the office right next door to hers. And I was afraid of bumping into her, but I was prepared um, should that have occurred. And the way that I let that therapist go was um, I called her and I said, uh, I think I left a message because she didn't pick up. But um, I said, uh, I am just feeling like it's, uh, it's not a good fit and, uh, and I want to move on. Uh, I feel like we did make some headway and I appreciate um, the time that we did spend together. And I hope you understand that this is about chemistry. And, um, and I know that as a, as a therapist, you understand that what I'm most comfortable with is what's most important. And, uh, and that was that. And I haven't seen her um, since then. But she has been trying to kill me. But I don't think that's a big deal. I think she's she's trying to kill me from a place of love. No, but in, in all seriousness, um, it's also a great way for you to work on boundaries and how to um, learn how to, uh, in an adult manner, um, do something that might disappoint somebody else. I think that's something so many of us struggle with is wanting to protect other people from having feelings but you deserve a therapist that uh, that you don't dread seeing I know it's a pretty high bar uh, oh love this woman's uh, name uh, shame and secret survey filled out by sad saggy titties <laughs> you guys are the best she's straight in her 40s raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment was uh, sexually abused and never reported it. Uh, my older sister molested me when we were little. She was uh, between 10 and 16, and I was between 4 and 10. I feel okay about it. I have empathy for my sister. We don't talk much anymore. We are very different people. I was a child. I'm trying to let it go and not feel shame about it. She's been physically and emotionally abused. My ex-husband was, still is, a very manipulative person. He was emotionally abusive, verbally abusive, and once physically abusive. I am only recently realizing that he raped me twice. First time was a few days before he also beat me. We were arguing and he lifted me onto the kitchen counter, pulled my pants off. I was crying and saying that I didn't feel like having sex. He said very quietly and very coolly that he was my husband and it was his right. Oh my God. Oh my God. The next time was then this is I wasn't I wasn't expecting that this would be as difficult to read um, as it is. The next night um, the next time was the night he beat me up and raped me. Uh, the cops were called. They asked me if he raped me and I couldn't say yes. I was so afraid and felt so alone. It's making me shake as I type this. I still have very visceral feelings when I think about this. I feel anger and shame and anger. I do like how anger feels in my body. 
I can feel a pain in my chest. Sometimes I think I'm giving myself a heart attack. Any positive experiences with your abusers? I used to think uh, there were positives, but looking back at my marriage, I see how all of my ex's motives were just that, motives, ways to manipulate situations, how he kept me under his thumb, how mentally ill he is. Darkest thoughts. Okay, this has nothing to do with all the previous stuff. This has to do with right now. I am trying not to have my feelings hurt. My sweetie of the last 13 years is not home. No note. I assume I know where he is, but I'm not sure. And this has nothing to do with trusting him or thinking he is out there with some other woman. It has to do with not feeling like I matter to him. Feeling like he does not give me a second thought, let alone a first one. He has always been this way, and for years it was fine. But something has changed for me. I don't know what exactly. The hot flashes and night sweats may have something to do with it, but I need him to be more affectionate. I want him to be more... I want him to be more affectionate, more thoughtful of me, more considerate of my feelings. I just can't imagine starting that conversation because if he disagrees, then I might have to get out. That's the scariest part. Could I actually leave because I can't make him change? He is who he is. He is a wonderful man and I feel like I keep raising the bar and I feel like that is unfair of me to do. It is not. What you want is boilerplate stuff that any healthy working relationship wants affection uh consideration uh i mean that's you are not asking for the world and if you if you ask that you know that might i have two thoughts one go to counseling and bring it up in counseling and have that neutral person there and Or the other one is bring it up, and if he disagrees, then say, I want to go to counseling. And if he disagrees about going to counseling, get the fuck out, because you deserve better. Darkest secrets. Well, being diddled by my sister was a big one. I want to uh, high-five you on being unafraid to use the word diddled. Uh, I did bully a kid when I was young, probably coincided with being diddled. Oh, second high-five. But I have forgiven myself for it. I think that's what it said. Again, bad stapling, Paul. Also, the kid moved away after six months, so it uh, ended. Not sure why I picked on him and only him. Um, I usually stood up for the underdog. Uh, my brother was usually the underdog. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Nothing too out there. Bondage, hiking sex, uh, and on balconies. Uh, I can attest to hiking sex. Pretty hot. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my sweetie, please pay more attention to me. It feels very selfish. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? That my teeth could floss themselves. Oh, and to find my inner balance, my inner peace. Have you shared these things with others? I have never shared with anyone that my ex raped me. That epiphany only occurred about six months ago. I am still processing it. I highly recommend that you do that with a therapist or contact the Rape and Incest National Network. Uh, you may be able to get free counseling there. Uh, but don't try to handle all of this on your own. And my hunch is that a, a roadblock to not only advocating yourself but healing from the rape um, those two things are often really tied together. And so helping get some momentum on one can help get some momentum on the other. I hope that makes sense. How do you feel after writing these things down? My heart has stopped racing and I feel a little lighter. It's crazy how much these inner dialogues can weigh. Amen. 
Um, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Remember to breathe. Keep laughing. Find people that are safe. Exercise. Be nice to yourself. Talk to yourself like you would to a friend. You are not alone. You might not know anyone personally going through what, through what you are, but you are not alone. Uh, to which I say ditto. Ditto. And now I feel completely different than I did when I started recording the podcast. I was feeling like I couldn't, couldn't put a sentence together, like my, my head was an empty apartment, you know, with the drapes blowing. And uh, now I feel like the windows are shut and some furniture's in there and uh, maybe some people are eating some chips. I don't know what any of that means. Herbert, help me. Herbert and Ivy have not been sitting in on the podcast lately. I think they're a little burned out on the shame and secret surveys, and I can't blame them. I cannot blame them. This is a struggle in a sentence uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself Golden Onion about his depression. Oh, I love this one. I feel like a tree trunk someone hollowed out to make a canoe, then decided they didn't want to do canoeing and left it in the mud on the bank of the river. Oh, that is a good one. That is a good one about being a sex crime victim. He writes, I still feel like I brought this upon myself via the codependency. Um, I've shown I'm willing to give unconditionally of myself to help you in your situation. Clearly my body, my safety, and my autonomy were part of that bargain, right? Sending you some love, buddy. Sending you some love. Yeah, his snapshot is kind of heartbreaking. Curled into a soggy ball under the covers where I've been all day long. I reflexively take out my phone to text a friend. Then I remember that I only had two close friends in this city. One got sucked into a black hole of her own depression and just flat out stopped answering texts and emails months ago. And the other had an alcoholic relapsed and raped me on Thanksgiving, torpedoing the last friendship I had that was close enough to talk about these kinds of feelings. My hand retracts back on under the covers and I would say what I said to the to the previous person contact the rape and incest national network because you deserve support you deserve to heal you deserve to be felt no one should suffer alone well one or two people but I'm not going to say who their names are this is filled out by a woman who calls herself nothing so you know this is going to be upbeat she is uh, in her 20s, pansexual, uh, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, yes, and I never reported it. Uh, I was raped and I let it happen. Then I went out and hung out with him again, letting myself get raped again. I'm told it's rape because I said no. I'm told it's rape because I said no, but I could have stopped it. I barely struggled. I, if you're listening to this, and you listened to the interview with Merritt, I hope you know that what you just said is patently untrue because we freeze. We freeze. And no means no. Um, have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, not sure. I'm not sure what's real anymore. I wonder if all the emotional abuse is really in my head. See, this is why it's so important to go talk to somebody after experiencing trauma is because it's a swirl of truth and lies mixed together going 100 miles an hour and trying to sort out the truth from the lies in our head by ourselves is 
impossible. Darkest thoughts. I think about suicide at the very least once every hour awake. Darkest secrets. I masturbate to the worst porn. It could be missionary, but she needs to cry and struggle or look defeated. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to explore being a sub. I'd wear a collar and call him master. I'm okay sharing, but I could never say this out loud. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? Uh, I'd like to go to the hospital. Uh, I don't believe I'd... Let me pull this. I need to go to the hospital. I don't believe I'd actually attempted... I'd actually attempt suicide, but I need help immediately. I can't wait any longer. I know my mom wouldn't understand. Well, then fuck your mom and go to the hospital because uh, you deserve it. I wonder if anything you wish for. I wish I could die and my son grow up unaffected. You know, even if you live and you don't get help, your son is going to be affected. And so even if you can't go to the hospital for yourself, go to the hospital for your son. And um, it's... Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I overshare because I'm looking for something that doesn't exist. I keep telling people because maybe this time someone can take care of me or maybe at least I could finally feel valid. All of the things that you're describing are, in my opinion, textbook things that, that uh, uh, PTSD and um, do not try to do this by yourself. I hope I'm not uh, getting on my soapbox and becoming redundant. Uh, this is an email I got from Mr. Uh, Diallo Cabore, and he says, Dear good friend, compliment of the season. I am Mr. Diallo Cabore, director in charge of auditing and accounting department of Bank of Africa, BOA. I hope that you will not betray or expose this trust and confident that I am about to repose on you for the mutual benefit of both our families. I don't know what that paragraph meant, but this guy seems like a friend. Um, he talked about both of our families in the first paragraph. To me, that is the sign of a relationship built on the foundation of trust. Let me continue. I need your urgent assistance in transferring the sum of $14,200,000 U.S. dollars immediately to your account anywhere you choose. I knew I was right about him. You know, for a second I thought this might be a fake email, but then I realized if it was a fake email, it would just be $14 million. But the fact that it's $14,200,000, that means it has to be real. Um, continuing, uh, this is a very highly secret. Well, I am a very highly interested. I will like you to please keep this proposal as a top secret or delete it if you are not interested. Upon receipt of your reply, I will send you more details about this business deal. I will also direct you on how this deal will be done without any problem. You must understand that this is 100% free from risk. I was starting to be a little suspicious until he assured me that it's it's 100%. Uh, because I even if it's 99% free from risk, I can't. Um, I mean, I hate to say that about the Bank of Africa, but I've never done business there. But the fact that this guy introduces himself as Mr. Diallo 
Mr. Diallo Cabore. I've got to assume that he has a position um, that is very high in the business world. Finishing. Therefore, my questions are, one, can you handle this project? I think I can, especially for $14,200,000. Two, can I give you this trust? I have no idea what that means. And then uh, if yes, get back to me immediately. I would be grateful for your prompt reply. Well, you better believe that this podcast, the budget of this podcast is about to expand by $14,200,000. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to fly to Africa and I'm going to find Mr. Diallo Cabore and I'm going to find out what kind of beautiful childhood he had that led to him being such an incredibly generous person. <laughs> that might have been the longest bit that I ever did. This was a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls him that guy at that place. I'm a fan of his already. Uh, and I just want to read uh, one thing from his survey, his deep, deepest, darkest secrets. He writes, when I was 15 or so, I snuck into my sister's bedroom and touched her breasts underneath the blanket. I had held onto this for 20 years until a month ago. I'd gotten high on an absurd amount of cough syrup. Uh, needless to say, by the way, how much would be getting high on a um, responsible amount of cough syrup. Oh man, I got wasted on a, I so wish the, the word was in my brain right now, on a, uh, damn it. That's the opposite of absurd, reasonable. That's the word I was looking for. You know, comedy is hard when you can't find the word. Needless to say, I wasn't in the best frame of mind. I was scared and lonely and called my mom, who my sister's sister lives with. I told her how I had relapsed after two years of sobriety, which was true. She picked me up and I stayed at their house until I could think straight. When my mom ducked out of the room, leaving us alone, I came clean. I told her how sorry about it I was and that I hoped she could forgive me. She said she didn't remember it and that everyone has demons that they live with and she still loves me. She told me about how she had a similar secret to do with a young girl that lived down the street from us. I feel so much relief for having told her and that she was willing to forgive me. I hope more people can find the courage to apologize to the ones they've abused. That is beautiful. That is so beautiful. And uh, I, I don't know if I would recommend uh, chugging cough syrup to go make an apology, but the fact that you did it is, is what matters. And uh, high five. High five, and hopefully you're sober. This is a snippet from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Cracker Jacks. And uh, what have people said or done that has helped you with your issues? And she writes, they said, I'm sorry you're in pain and meant it. Felt like such a relief they didn't try to fix me. Amen. Beautiful. Beautiful. Struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself R about her anxiety. No safety, but constantly trying to find safety. Uh, this next one is Shame and Secret Survey filled out by Rob. And he is gay. He's in his 20s. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. He was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. 
He writes, I was getting drunk with a friend and they had sex with me when I blacked out. But I had consensual sex with them the next morning because it felt good and I felt like if I did, then it would all just be normal. I felt ashamed, disgusted with myself. I really may never forgive myself for getting so drunk, for partially taking pleasure during the sex I didn't want, and for most of all, trying to gloss over the next morning and laugh it off. And I hope, Rob, I'm so sorry that happened to you and I hope you understand how common your reaction was to all of that stuff and you are not to blame you are not to blame have you ever been physically or emotionally abused not sure i come from a pretty narcissistic family uh, i would say so would my therapist my mom has some serious rage issues all in all i felt like i was worthless and trivial i don't know that they were really emotionally abusive i think it's debatable but the way their actions and words affected me are pretty lasting and they were definitely critical um, derisive unpredictable and harsh um, I'd say, yeah, that's emotionally abusive. Uh, any positive experiences with your abusers? Oh my God, yes. My mom is not really capable of being there for me, but she is as much as she can. So there's a constant tension between my unmet needs and my sympathy for her. Oh my God, that is so perfectly put. That is so... You just encapsulated what tens of millions of us feel in a relationship with a caregiver. A constant tension between my unmet needs and my sympathy for her. I'm going to be honest. You just described my life and my relationship with my mom. Darkest secrets. Darkest thoughts. Sometimes something about me is evil. I'm just always going to make the wrong choice. So I need to find a way to negate or hide or annihilate myself because something is so wrong with me. I think about killing myself. I think about doing every sexually depraved thing you could ever name. I think about saying cruel things to people, reducing them to tears, making them live with the memory of what I said as revenge for what they have inadvertently made me feel. Darkest secrets. My darkest secret is that I have no identity of my own. I just want to do whatever will make someone love me. Oh, that is heartbreaking. <sighs> Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I like to imagine being a kid again and having sex with a guy who's the loving father figure I never had, or else a guy that's cruel and sadistic pretty clearly a result of daddy issues. I feel pretty disgusted with that. I don't like to think of myself as this powerless kid outside of sex, but I guess that's really how I feel. Totally unsure of myself and immature and longing for a father figure to guide me. What if anything would you like to say to someone but you haven't been able to? I'd say to my ex-therapist, I like you as a person, but you weren't good at what you did. To everyone, I'm sick of existing to please you. You don't get to be a part of my life if you can't care about how I feel. To myself, stop lying to yourself about how you feel. What, if anything, do you wish for? I hope my mom and brother and sister and I can learn to be happy, healthy, functional people before we die. Have you shared these things with others? No. Or, if so, only in disordered fragments. I'm not used to being honest. Hiding things are comfortable to me. If I hide the truth, then I can make up anything as I need to. Hiding the truth keeps me from acknowledging, uh, from being hurt. If I never take uh, uh, a risk to begin with, I'll never be disappointed. But you'll also never feel the joy of being felt in a moment of being vulnerable. And that is one of life's greatest feelings. 
How do you feel after writing these things down? Weirdly better. I feel like I have less to be ashamed of than I thought I did. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You're a brave person for filling, for filling that out and going back into that yuck and, uh, and talking about it. And it helped me. I see a lot of myself in your survey, and that helped me feel less alone. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, I hate that I'm a masochist. Um, and this is a, uh, she's a teenager and um, snapshot from her life. She writes, I come home having worked all day and eating less than I should have. I am hungry and I eat dinner. I hate myself for eating what my fucked up brain tells me is too much and go into the bathroom and cut myself to cope with feeling like such a fat ass. Like such a fat ass. My scissors are incredibly dull and don't draw blood no matter how hard I press. I feel like a failure because I can't even succeed at being a fuck up. I go lay down in my bed to cry because I feel like the biggest fuck up, but then I remember I haven't been able to cry for the past five years. Sending you a warm, warm hug. And you are not a fuck up. You are a sensitive person living in a painful world and i think your mission is to find the safe people and start to heal this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself hg wells and um he is bisexual in his 20s raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment never been sexually abused but he has been emotionally abused my dad had a nice collection of nicknames for me growing up that included shit for brains and dip short for dipshit he had horrible boundaries to the extent i don't remember ever, ever having alone time in his house throughout my childhood this has extended into some very manipulative relationships including significant others threatening suicide if i were to break up with them any positive experiences with your abusers? Uh, my relationship with my dad has always been complicated with him having primary custody after my parents divorced. He has always been very helpful financially and actually paid for the entirety of my college and continues to be a helpful person in my life with most of the emotional abuse having stopped. This has led to several people, including my sister and myself, telling me that things weren't that bad slash have gotten better and therefore they shouldn't bother me anymore darkest thoughts. I've thought about having sex with my stepmother in order to spite my father. I think of ways I can manipulate people, especially those around me to keep them invested in my life as I am terrified of rejection. When my dad has traveled overseas, sometimes I wish his plane would crash so I don't have to deal with the conflicting feelings I have about him. Darkest secrets. I have a long history of binge drinking and promiscuity in conjunction. I slept with many men and women regardless of my attraction to them. I stole money from my roommate when I studied abroad in order to buy more alcohol and have lied to people on several occasions about why my financial situation is what it is. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. My fantasies end up on opposite sides of the spectrum ranging from strong domination on my part to strong submission on my part. I love the idea of holding someone down or tying them up and having the same done to me. My biggest fantasies revolve around power plays and the feelings themselves don't really make me feel anything. However, when I think about how they may uh, have been created, power struggles in childhood, I feel disgust and shame. I also have an obsession with women's underwear of all types. I fantasize about what my body would look like as a woman in different underwear and love when underwear are forgotten by female partners. 
I have always had this, even going so far as to try on my mom's underwear after it went through the wash during puberty. Nothing to do with my mom, but wearing the underwear turned me on in ways that still brings so much shame uh, that I only think two people have ever been told about uh, even my interest in this. The sentences, uh, I think, spell check might have kind of fucked that up, but Dude, do not feel shame about that. Do not feel shame. We all have something that uh, that floats our boat, and um, that happens to be your your boat, one of your boats. And uh, life is too short to beat yourself up about shit that's not hurting anybody. What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would apologize to a lot of women uh, that were more than likely hurt in the wake of my mental illness and fondness for bad relationships. I want to tell my mom how her comments about my butt throughout the years have always left me uncomfortable and how she always responds, I love you more, makes me feel inconsiderate and like I don't do enough for her. Um, it sounds like there's some emotional incest going on uh, with your your mom and your uh, you and your, your parents. I would definitely go to a, a therapist. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to be in a healthy relationship as I'm afraid I don't know how to find and foster one. I wish to have enough money to not feel like a financial burden on my dad. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I've shared most of these things to either my therapist, okay, there we go, or their sexual fantasies with partners, except, except the extent to what I would call my underwear fetish goes. Talking about all of them has made them a lot easier to deal with uh, as all the people I have shared with have been understanding. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like a weight has been lifted, but what is revealed was gross and rotting. That is so not gross and rotting. Sending you a high five, buddy. Sending you some love. I think I might make all the surveys. Getting close. (sighs) Actually, I don't. I don't think I can read this one. It's too long. Ah, that's too interesting. Ah, I don't know. I'm sorry, I'm doing this while while we're rolling. Just my voice is starting to... Uh... No, I think this one is... is uh... I think this one is too interesting to, to not read. Um... This is called, uh, this is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Accidental Fuckery. And um, she is bisexual in her 30s, raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was younger, let's say between the ages of 7 and 12, I had a lot of recurring bladder infections. To this day, we're not sure what caused it, but the infections would come on between six and ten times per year and resulted in many, many trips to the pediatrician. Up until a few years ago, it it was my firm belief that my doctor had inappropriately touched me. I have vivid, uncomfortable memories of him giving me very thorough vaginal exams. It involved him using his fingers to touch and closely inspect my vagina, often, if not always, I can't recall, without a parent in the room. I felt extremely violated. Lasting effects from this include a strong dislike of being touched sexually by a man. Fingers are a big no for me, a complete turnoff. 
oral, penis to vagina, all of that is great. Just don't fucking touch my vagina with your hands. Having had so many of these infections, I knew what was wrong. My parents knew what was wrong. It was no mystery, just another bladder infection. I couldn't understand why that required such an invasive exam each and every time. Over the years, the more I thought about it, the more violated and molested I felt. I was disappointed with my mother for not noticing it was happening, but at the same time, I had never said anything to her. A few years ago, I brought this up with my mother. She told me that because of my age and the recurring pattern, the doctor was required to examine me to verify that there was no sexual abuse going on that might be causing the infections. My mom worked for many years in the child protective services sector and has had a lot of experience working with abused children, so she has a lot of knowledge on the subject. She said that sometimes these exams can be quite traumatic for abuse victims. So either I was legitimately molested or it was the very system put in place to protect me from molestation that ended up doing just that. Whether it was, quote, real abuse or just protocol, in my mind at the time, in my memory in the present, it was so totally inappropriate. So I guess it doesn't really matter. I know others have had much worse things happen to them, but yeah, pretty fucked up. And uh, fuck what other people had done to them. Follow the thread of how it made you feel and process that with a mental health professional or or a support group. Um, I mean, my thought just hearing this is it it sounds it sounds like abuse to me. Um, I don't know why. Um, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but I think our spidey sense when we're when we're kids is pretty dead on. And I think I think the the world, particularly abusive households, can dull our spidey sense or tell the mean part of our brain to override our spidey sense. Um, I'm assuming everybody knows what spidey sense is. Darkest thoughts. When I was preteen slash teen, I would go to sleep at night hoping that I would get raped by a random stranger because I wanted to have sex. I didn't have anybody particular in mind, didn't have a boyfriend or anybody to experiment with, so I hoped for a home invasion or that I would get picked off on the street one day. I remember conspiratorially imagining how the rapist would think he was raping me, but how secretly it wouldn't actually be rape because I wanted it to happen. I think this stemmed from my discovery of orgasm at an early age. I got it in my head that sex would feel like an orgasm for the entire duration of the act. And the idea of an orgasm lasting that long was fucking fantastic. I couldn't wait to try it out. I wouldn't be surprised, too, if that those fantasies were triggered by um, a, a way of wanting to control um, what was happening with that, with that doctor. Uh, darkest Secrets. I once slept with a guy for $2,000. He told me he wanted to be my sugar daddy. Actually, I slept with him twice, so I got four, four grand out of the exchange. For a brief period during college, I lived in a city in a slightly sketchy neighborhood. One day, I got extremely high on marijuana and was sitting out on the stoop just watching the world go by. I heard a terrible shrieking, a woman calling for help over and over and over again. It was kind of muffled and distant, but it was clear as day to me. I was so goddamn high, though, I immediately started questioning whether it was real. I wanted to call the police to report it, but I was scared. I was hallucinating. I was scared I was hallucinating and would end up getting in trouble for the pot. I didn't think I could even speak. I was so terrified, and I did nothing. I think it was real, and I think somebody might have been killed. It sounded that bad. And I did nothing because I was a fucking pothead. Pathetic. 
You are not pathetic. Um, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Group sex, specifically multiple males with a single fe- female slash me, is my most prevalent fantasy. I'm comfortable sharing that with friends and strangers, but I don't think I've told my husband. I haven't told him because if he told me it was his fantasy to be with a bunch of women, I know I'd feel jealous and inadequate. So I don't say anything because I wouldn't want to make him feel that way. What, if anything, would you want to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my husband about the eating disorder that I have hidden from him for nearly 10 years we have been together. I don't because he is entirely unaccepting of lies, even little white lies. And yes, I have lied outright on many occasions to cover my tracks, and that was wrong. So there is the double shame of the eating disorder and the associated lies to contend with. I've actually never told anybody about the eating disorder. I think I've managed to quit. It has been six months or so since I have engaged in these activities, but it seems too soon to say that I have truly gotten past it. My disorder falls into the eating disorder not otherwise specified category, and it's really gross. What I was doing was chewing up and spitting out food so that I could taste it but avoid the calories. I would buy cakes, burritos, pizzas, Cookies, french fries, huge bags of candy, mostly fatty, sugary junk food. I would stash the food in my office or my closet or well hidden in the back of the freezer and then spend hours at a time stuffing my face and spitting out the chewed up food I'd carefully planned out system. Oh, spitting out the chewed up food. I had carefully planned out systems in place so I could chew and spit at work and not get caught and do the same at home. Over time, I refined my behavior. In the beginning, I would dump the waste into the toilet and flush it down. Presumably, because there was so much fat in the waste I was flushing, eventually there was a massive plumbing backup in my office building. It cost them thousands of dollars to repair. I am virtually certain it was my fault. So then I switched to plastic garbage bags. I had a special plastic garbage bin hidden in my closet at home and office, um, to toss the waste. It was heavy, sloshy, and smelly. This activity happened every day for years and years. I spent an absolutely absurd amount of money on food. I severely damaged my teeth and spent a shit ton on dental work. I had root canals and other painful and terrible procedures done. I would be in the dentist chair being drilled, promising myself that it had to stop, but I could not stop. Towards the end, My intake was almost 100% candy. Big bags from Costco or Walmart, Reese's, Twix, Snickers. It was horrific. So how did it stop? Well, I switched from Lexapro to Wellbutrin, and just like that, I was able to kick the habit. Wellbutrin is known for helping people get off smoking, and similarly, it helped me curb my eating addiction. The scary thing is, though, there is a well-known warning associated with Wellbutrin that says, do not use if you have an eating disorder. Apparently, it can cause seizures in people with anorexia or bulimia. Before prescribing a drug to me, my psychiatrist asked me if I'd had a history of either, and I said no, because I don't. Uh, but because, but I was secretly terrified that my EDNOS was going to end up causing me to have seizures. So I stopped the chew and spit behavior, and that was that. I have since switched back to Lexapro, but the disorder remains at bay. And you know, my thought as I'm reading this, first of all, I want to send you a hug. Um, but the second thing is, is under what is underneath an addiction is what really is the thing you want to get to with support groups or a therapist, because the addiction may be at bay, but the the self-talk 
and the way we view ourselves in the world is what is at the root of addiction. And so you may remove you know, the pot of soup that that thing is heating, but you're not removing that, that heat source that is, is dangerous. God, do I hate that metaphor. <laughs> and I like, too, that I made it a food reference to somebody uh, with an eating disorder. Just really great on my, on my part. I know you're laughing, but... Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? Confidence. Well, I think getting to the root of those things that have fed your eating disorder. Because your eating disorder may have been helped by the Wellbutrin. It may be at bay, but I guarantee you that negative self-talk and all those other things are still there, and um, you deserve you deserve to tackle them. Have you shared these things with others? As discussed above, I haven't told a soul about the eating disorder. My husband and my mom are both aware of the questionable uh, pediatrician. How do you feel after writing these things down? Uh, I feel a big weight off after writing about the EDNOS, which is why I decided to take this survey in the first place. Having written all my antics down, it is rather mind-blowing. It is amazing when we write stuff out. It is amazing. Um, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I wanted to mention the Wellbutrin and how it helped me with my eating disorder in case it might do the same for someone else. But again, I have to stress the risk of seizure, so I don't really know. Maybe there's somebody else out there who does the spit and shoe thing too, and they won't feel so alone. Oh, I guarantee you there are people that do that thing. Uh, Anorexia and bulimia are the poster children for eating disorders, but there's other stuff out there that is very damaging too. I can't imagine ever telling my own psychiatrist or physician about it, but maybe someday I will. I hope you can, because it'll be easier for them to to help you if they have more information. Sending you some love. Sending you some love. Oh, and Herbert sends some love. Wow, that's rare. He's he's a stone. Struggle in a sentence filled up by Kim about her depression. Yesterday I could have, and I didn't. Today I can, and I won't. You guys are on fire with the struggle in a sentence today. On fire. Awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Schrodinger's dog. After going to the emergency room with a swollen testicle, uh, I had to have an ultrasound taken of my scrotum to check for testicular torsion. Despite the circumstances and my poor conversational skills, the technician and I had the most pleasant talk I think I've had in years. She even told me that it was nice talking to me afterward and seemed sincere. Maybe I should show my balls to everyone I try to talk to. I I have to cast my vote in the affirmative for that and uh, suggest that you start with public transportation and the driver. You walk up the steps, you put your token in, you lift up your short, you say, how's this grab you? Uh, and take it from there. This is filled out by Ike, and he writes uh, about his depression and anxiety. A uh, snapshot from his life, staring at the wall, unable to focus, and trying my hardest to pretend to be listening when spoken to. I think a lot of us, a lot of us uh, definitely relate to that one I don't think I can read this one my, my uh, yeah 
Maybe I'll save that one for another another show. I'm just gonna end end with uh oh, this one's so good. Yeah, I gotta read this one. This is a, an email I got from a guy who calls himself Mike. And uh, he writes, uh, I recently thank you for recommending the book on narcissistic families. Um, I think, I think uh, the name of the book is The Narcissistic Family, by the way, if you want to, uh, if you want to look for it, um, as it completely nailed my family. Well, the head narcissist happens to be my dad, and he's a very sad person that has pretty much neglected his own self-care for his entire life. His upbringing was worse than mine, so there are reasons, but long story short, he is now on dialysis as he destroyed his kidneys. Last week, he neglected to go to dialysis a couple of times in a row and neglected to tell the place, so he just didn't show up. He ended up having to go to a hospital because the buildup of toxins resulted in him losing his mind, and after they did the dialysis, it got even worse. He was dehydrated, and his brain was reacting badly to the stress of it all on his system, so he was really out of it. I was texting about it with my sister, who was codependent with him, and we were discussing discussing how he was doing. Their idea of hydrating him and getting him healthy was a fast food meal and a soft drink. I was suggesting things they could do to help him in a healthier way, and they had every reason that and they had every reason that those things wouldn't work. So I just wished them good luck and moved on with my day. It was I was working at my job and thinking to myself about how I had been the one they called last time to get him to the hospital to save his life. It hit me that really I had no place doing so. My dad doesn't want to be here. He takes zero care of himself. He's never really seemed happy in his life and won't do anything to get better, and I pushed him to get help for my own reasons, which wasn't fair. As I sat there pondering my new role in the family and in the light of the book on narcissistic families, I was really torn about what I should do. Should I be there for them and really help drive things when they need me, or just accept that my dad doesn't care and that it is his life and his place to tear take care of him, not mine. Well, it was then that I got a random text from my sister. My dad was asleep and hallucinating, singing a song that I haven't heard him listen to since we were kids, and she texted me his exact words, you got to know when to hold him, know when to fold him, know when to walk away, know when to run. Lyrics to The Gambler by Kenny Rogers. I broke down crying as there was my answer just when I really needed it. It was time to let go. And whether you say it was God telling me something or just my sick hallucinating dad, I will never forget that moment. If you feel this is more just a happy moment, classify it as you see fit. Uh, yeah, that that is, uh, I think that's, uh, that's somewhere between awfulsome and happy. And then finally, this is uh, from the What Has Helped You survey. And uh, this is filled out by Hannah, and she's 15 years old, and her issues are depression, anxiety, and self-harm, and what has helped her deal with them. I climb mountains. I love hiking, and I've summited 10, 14,000-plus-foot mountains so far. Wow, that is fucking serious. I climbed a 10,000-foot mountain, and it kicked my ass. Um, wow. Uh, some of the trips take days, and I will hike up. Uh, for up to nine hours a day. It can be grueling, but it also feels like pure meditation and joy and wholeness with nature. I'm able to listen to my favorite musical, Hamilton, and sync my steps with the rhythm. Taking that last step to the top is so rewarding, and in that moment, all of my problems disappear. What, if anything, have people said or done that has helped you with your issues? And she writes, When I told her about my self-harm, 
my friend hugged my legs, scars and all, and told me she loved me. It was such a simple and compassionate action, and I will remember the feeling forever. I had to end with that one because that is like one of the most beautiful images I've, I think I've heard doing this show. I can't imagine how comforting that was. And what a, what a great friend. What a great friend. Man. Of course, probably now they're not sitting near each other at lunch and they hate each other because a boy came between them. But that's neither here nor there. It's a beautiful survey. And thank you for sharing that, Hannah. And uh, wow, I, I didn't even really pick up on the first time I read that. The uh, Summiting 10, 14, we call those uh, in mountain climbing parlance in the United States, 14,000ers. And um, that's, that's fucking amazing. Actually, now I'm a little resentful that at 15, you've you've done that much. So I'm going to tell you to go fuck yourself and uh, and hope that your grades go downhill and uh, that nice friend of yours leaves you and you twist your ankle. So how you like that? Enjoy your 2016, Hannah. Throwing your success in our face. Like we don't have lives? Herbert, Ivy, I think I'm out of. Uh, I think I'm out of ways to stretch this godforsaken, never-ending episode. 150 minutes we're at, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> what if I just tried to stretch it to 180? Those of you that remember the the three-minute stretch to make it to the three-hour, that would be. That would be. I would have to go for another half hour and I can guarantee you that will never happen to which uh, you should tip your cap and say I thank thee if you've listened this far A. I'm sorry because you clearly have no life Um, I hope you heard something that helped you I hope some of you who were on the fence about reaching out for help especially those who've experienced sexual trauma I really hope this episode brought you some comfort, some insight, um, and gave you that little nudge to make that scary fucking phone call to say, um, I'm in pain. I don't know what to do. I need to talk to somebody. And um, I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I did. Um, If you're out there and you're struggling, you're not alone. You're so not alone. There's so many of us. We're everywhere. <laughs> I bet nine out of ten lines at the coffee house, every person in that is stuck in their head, feeling like a fraud or a failure, or if they are achieving some kind of success, terrified that it's going to be gone tomorrow. I don't know why I picked a coffee house. Maybe because uh, outside of my bed, that's really the only place. The bed and the ice rink in my support groups, that's really the only place I go. All right. We really are done now. Thank you for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.